Well, amen. I'll tell you what, that made me want to charge the gates of hell with a super soaker, you know what I'm saying? Man, if you were blessed by the worship this morning, say amen. amen. Uh, isn't it amazing how God can communicate his truth through the power of music? Uh, there was so much in the worship this morning that truly encouraged me, spoke to me. Um, there was a line in Jeff's special that said, the walls of Jericho quake. Man, that's powerful when you think about the power of God. Did it seem pretty crazy to those that were marching around Jericho that, that was God's plan to bring the walls down? Of course it did. If I was back then, if I was an Israelite, and I, that was my commission, I was told, okay, here's what we're going to do. Here's the big master plan to defeat this, this city that cannot be torn down. We're going to march around it for a few days, and we're just going to march around it. I would have looked at the, the person in command and just been like, and throw stuff at it while we march around it? Like, what's, what else? We're just not going to march around it. Like, are we going to throw rocks at it while we march around it? Like, what's the plan? But sometimes God will move in ways that we don't understand, that we can't see where the point and where the plan is. But, man, he is moving and he is working. And there is no stronghold that he cannot take down. There is no stronghold in your life that he can't tear down. Now see, that's the power of our God, that when we surrender our lives to him, there is no chain he can't break, and there is no wall that won't crumble. He is that powerful. And what a beautiful name it is. If you have a Bible this morning, and I hope that you do, 1 John, all the way towards the end of the New Testament, 1 John chapter 4 is where we're going to be. And uh, I should have said this before, but if you have any, uh, we are doing some of our junior church classes this morning. So if you have uh, a child uh, that's a little older than nursery, so like two years old through five years old, we do have a class for them uh, right down here next to the nursery. So uh, many of you have already dropped your child or children off down there. Um, the, the older kids, the first grade through sixth grade, uh, they're still in service with us, this, with us this morning. And so if you have a child that's in that age range, uh, that grade range, I should say, in the back, there are some clipboards with some uh, sermon note page, uh, kind of a fun sermon note page for them to be able to keep notes, but also kind of have some fun with that, and then some things to keep them occupied. Um, and so if you want to have your child have something like that available to them, uh, you are not going to offend anybody or bother anybody by getting up or sending them. If you trust them to go back to the back of the room and come back, uh, that's up to you. Uh, if you want to walk them back there or you want to go get that, there's a red cart back here. You can grab one of those clipboards, again, to be gathering together today. And last week, we talked about um, the Lord just kind of had led on my heart. I mentioned the week prior to that, really spoke to me that we have one life to live, right? One life to live. Uh, your life has been gifted to you, right? It, you, it's not yours to do with what you want. We made this very clear last week that God has graciously gifted you with life. And what we do with this life matters and makes a difference, not just in this world, but in our eternal state as well. And we talked about the reality that life is not only one, it is also short, right? Life is short. We don't have this unending amount of time. Now, isn't it true that when we were younger, we thought life just went on forever, right? When you're younger, maybe uh, those of you that are in uh, the junior church class that are here or teenagers that are here, you have this mentality that I'm just going to live forever. We don't really believe that, but we have this mindset that we think we'll live forever. But the reality is, compared to eternity, 80, 90 years in the scope of eternity is actually quite short. Uh, we talked last week from James. Does anyone remember what James compared our life to? It says your life is a vapor. That vapor, that word for vapor in the Bible, the original word, the idea there is, how many of you have ever boiled water? If you've boiled water, raise your hand. Okay, some of you need to have some more cooking experiences apparently. Okay. Has anybody burned like a pan boiling water because you forgot it was going and it just going and going? I saw one hand go up like, I didn't even finish saying what it was and <laughs> right up there. Okay, I remember when I was in high school, I was like, Macaroni and cheese. That's not hard. Anyone can make mac and cheese. So I'll make some mac and cheese. Well, I got some water going and forgot the water was going and it took the water and the water was gone and the pan was, and it was a horrible moment, okay? Because when you, you're, my stepdad walks in the room and was like looking at the scene like a detective coming on the crime scene. There's a pan in the sink, a half open box of mac and cheese over here. I'm all depressed. I'm like, what's going on? But that, that, when you boil water, 
the steam that comes off the water, the time you see the steam to the time it kind of dissipates at the top and kind of goes away, we can't see it anymore, that's the vapor James is talking about. It's not a very long span of time. But that's what James says our life is like compared to the scope of eternity. So what does that mean? Man, every day is a gift. Every day is a gift. We said it last week. When I realize that every day is a gift from him, for him, that's when living takes place, right? When I realize that every single day is a gift from God to me, that I'm meant to live in a way and worship back to him, I surrender it to him, then I start living. That's when I really will experience life. Well, as I was praying over this week's message, I kept thinking about one life to live. And I was thinking about the passage we're going to look at in 1 John 4, and I was reading through that, and I was blown away by the love of God. And God kind of just kind of spoke through that passage and said, man, you need to talk about my love this week. And, and so I was really going to camp there for a while this week. And then I was thinking about, what do we call this week's message? And I was thinking, I know, one life to love. Fits, right? You guys like that? Okay. I know I don't always do alliteration. Every week's the same thing. But it fits. So, but I told uh, someone this morning, I said, the first week, one life to live, was just what I call a topical sermon. It was just a one-weeker. Okay? You guys know we do series around here, so I'll usually do like four messages in a series. This was just a one-weeker, okay? And God is changing it up. I mean, now, we're, now I've got two with a similar title. And anyone that does speaking or anything like that, you know what now I'm tempted to do, right? What am I tempted to do? Now I've got to turn it into a four-week message series, okay? Because I can't just do two. I've got to have four. So pray for me. Pray more for Sandra because I'm probably going to annoy her this week with title ideas and be like, hey, what do you think about this? And what do you think about that? And she's going to be like, oh, that's great. Oh, that's great too. Oh, that's great. Anybody have a spouse that everything is great when you ask them? Okay. What do you think about this? That's great. How did I do? You did great. How's this? You did great. At some point you're like, I think you're lying. I think you're making this stuff up. I don't think I'm really that great. I think, I think you just want me to be quiet. Like, I think that's what's going on here. But I wanted to talk this morning about the reality that not only do we have one life to live, we have one life to love. One life to love. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. When you saw the title, you thought this. You're thinking, oh, here we go again. Another sappy sermon about love. Or maybe you're thinking, God is love, but also, brother, God is wrath. Some of you are there. Because we, we do hear a lot of God is love sermons nowadays. And the tragedy is that, is God love? Yes or no? Not a trick question. Yes. Is God also holy? Yes. God is not one thing at the expense of another thing. So, so God can be perfectly holy, and only God is perfectly, completely holy unto himself. But God can also be perfectly love and grace and truth. God is Everything that God is, he is fully and perfectly without any fault or flaw. So we are not that way, right? We tend to be emotional creatures that we either are loving in this moment or we're not loving. We're not usually all loving and all something else. We struggle in that area because of sin. So we are going to understand that God is love, but God is also holy. This is not a sappy Hallmark sermon, okay? Nothing against Hallmark, but we're not talking about that kind of love, so don't go there. And for those of us that are annoyed by the amount of just God is love, God is love, God is love, at the expense of the holiness of God, it's not that either. And I feel like I wanted to kind of lay the groundwork there because I want us to all be open to what God has for us. I want to assure you this is not a one-sided sermon. But I do want to make it clear that we will emphasize the love of God because I believe God emphasizes the love of God in his word. And I think he has to emphasize the love of God to us because we need his love. I honestly believe that we can always grow in our understanding of how much God loves us and how much we can display that love to others. I want to look at a passage in 1 John and read a few verses that help us to understand and to see how those two dynamics come together in my life, that God loves me and I can better love someone else. I should note that John, the author of 1 John, uh, is also the author of 2nd and 3rd John, the Gospel of John, if you've read that, and the book of Revelation. All the same author, all the same human author that God spoke through to give the word of God to us. He was a disciple. 
Uh, many of you know from the Gospels that he had a brother named James. John and James were the sons of Zebedee. Uh, they were also called the sons of Thunder. Uh, they were kind of passionate, zealous guys. When we read the Gospel of John, or even some things in his epistles, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, we think of John as this, like, hippie, this, like, love guru, okay? That is not what John was. That is not what John is in Scripture. John was a kind of a black and white guy. He was a truth guy. When you read the Gospel of John, you read things in comparisons like death and life, light and dark, right? Righteous Wicked. There's no gray area for John. So when we get into 1 John, and as I'm reading all of this, again, don't think of John being this like mushy kind of a love guy. Think of a guy that's saying, no, no, no. The truth of God's love is what sets us free from the error of sin. I will avoid sin in my life the more I understand the truth of God's love. That's what will allure me towards the things of God when I know how much he loves me. So saying all that to say this, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7. I'm going to read a lot of verses. And so if you don't have a Bible, that's totally fine. Just listen as I read along. Maybe look off those that are next to you. Uh, let me also say this. If you don't have a Bible at home uh, or a device that has the Bible on it, uh, we would love to give that to you before you leave today. You can go to the Welcome Center. You can pick one up free of charge, no credit card information, nothing like that. Uh, you can just have it. We're just that generous around here. So 1 John, okay. Somebody was like, did he really make a point of saying generous? They're giving away Bibles. It's a church. That's what you're supposed to do. Anyway, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7. Beloved. Now, I love that term. Who's the beloved here? Who is he speaking to? The church, the believers, the Christians. I love that God calls us the beloved. What Do we call ourselves the beloved some days? What do we like to call ourselves? This is actually really popular even in conservative fundamental churches. What do we call ourselves? Sinners. Sinners saved by grace. Let's check that. We are sinners, right? I didn't save myself. I was saved by grace. But does John call us sinners? Man, it matters what you identify yourself as. We have sinned. We will be tempted to sin. And we may sin again. That's just a reality of human nature. We have sin nature in us. I am a sinner saved by grace. But it's important to note that God does not call those who have been converted to Christ sinners in his word. He says things like, my son, my daughter, beloved. And I really think if we started thinking of ourselves more like God thinks of us as followers of Christ, I think we would see a different perspective on our life and our actions. He says, beloved. Let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loves is born of God and knows God. He that loves not knows not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. It's amazing when you read this, you can hear the gospel of John, right? You can, you can see the similar writing style here. Then he says this in verse 10. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the payment or ransom for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwells in us and his love is perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirits. That we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. We should say amen right there. May he sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever, verse 15, shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwells in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love cast out fear. Because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. 
We love him because he first loved us. If a man say, I love God and hate his brother, he is a liar. (laughs) There's that not really gray area with John, right? You tell me this, but guess what? You don't because you hate your brother. So mm, liar. He just calls it like he sees it, like he just says it. So if any man love God and hate his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loves God loves his brother also. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would open up your word to us this morning. We pray that we would have the wisdom by the leading of your spirit to know truth and to let truth set us free. Father, when we speak of this, this area in our lives, this, this idea that we can love you more and love others more, uh, inevitably what happens is, Lord, we start to feel convicted because we know we're not doing this as well as we could. We know we're not living this out in our lives as well as you would want us to. And so I pray that at the very beginning, before we even get into the message, that if we are struggling in this area, if maybe there's uh, someone that's hurt us or offended us, that, and maybe they were even in the wrong, Lord, I pray that we would strive to have a Christ-like love. But I also pray that we would understand grace and that we would know that when we repent of those feelings, those thoughts, those things that we've said, we can have forgiveness. And so this morning, Lord, I pray that nobody would leave here with their head down and feeling guilty or shamed, but I pray that we would leave here encouraged by your word, desiring to live in a way that honors you, and desiring and open for opportunities to share your love with others as you've so greatly loved us. And so, Father, again, I pray that we would know that none of of us in this room have this perfect. We all could grow in this area, and I pray that we would know there's grace for that. Lord, we love you. We thank you for everyone that is here. And again, if there's anyone that doesn't know you, I pray they'd come to know you before they leave this place this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, There is so much in this passage, and if you're not... Seeing it, obviously John wants us to catch a couple things here, right? I think when you read just those few verses, you see that John has an emphasis he wants us to understand. And he says it over and over and over again. There's some key things here. I think it would be pretty easy for someone to outline this text in this way, to see that God is love, that God loves us, that God desires to dwell with us, and that if we love God by receiving Jesus Christ as the Lord and First Savior, we can dwell with him. And so when you see this idea in this passage unfolding, I want us to focus on just some things we see here, some of the key ideas that we can take away this morning. The first thing we have to understand in verse 7 is God is the origin of love. God is the origin of love. Verse 7 makes it very clear. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. It has its origin, its foundation in God. As creator, he gave us the ability to love as he can love. In Genesis, we read of the creation of mankind, which I believe to be literal and historical in meaning. I do not believe the Genesis account of man being formed and creating woman from the side of man, the six-day creation where he spoke things into existence. I believe those things to be literal and historical. I don't believe they're figurative or allegorical, meaning that it's just an, an illustration of how God created. And since Moses was not intelligent enough to understand the evolutionary process and the things that go into that, God just made it like a story and made it easy for Moses to understand. And that's how he explained it when he wrote the book of Genesis. I believe that when God says he spoke and there was light, he spoke and there was this, I believe that happened because I believe God's that powerful. And I know some people might say, well, you're crazy, you're foolish, that's silliness, whatever, whatever. I I don't care what people think. I believe God's word is God's word. So, But when you read the Genesis account of mankind being created, it says that let us make man in our, and he uses the word here, image, right? In our likeness. And when you read that or understand that, he's not saying we look like God. Uh, Obviously, look around the room. Many of us look different from one another. That's, I'm not going to say it's good or bad. I'm just saying we look different, okay? Like we're all a little different, okay? Okay. Let's just say I'm glad my wife was very sympathetic when she said yes to marry me, okay? So, amen. Many, and any of the men that are honest will say amen, right? 
But when you think about this idea, we're not saying look like God, because, man, there's beauty in creation of the, the uniqueness of every individual person, right? One of the most beautiful verses or, or ideas in Scripture is when it says that every tribe and tongue will stand before the throne of God and worship him. Our gospel is not an American gospel. It's not a, a European gospel, right? It's a gospel for all peoples, right? There's beauty in creation, the skin tones and the languages of the world. It's amazing to hear. So when you think about that, he's not saying look like God when he says we're going to make him in our likeness, in our image. What's he saying? We are a similar creation that we have emotion, intellect, and will. We, we have an image of God. We, we're image bearers of God. And when you understand that that makes us unique in all of creation, and one of those unique parts of our creation is that we were given emotion and the ability to express that emotion unique from the rest of creation. God gave us the ability to have feelings. Now, other things have feelings, but not like humanity does. And also, other things can't express those emotions the way God has gifted us the ability to express those things. When we understand that God made us with emotions, that God has emotions, God has love, God has anger, God has sadness, God can be jealous, but everything with God is perfect. In the Bible, you know, it says that God is jealous for us, but it's a perfect jealousy. It's a righteous jealousy. When we think jealousy, do we think good or bad? We think bad, right? Because to be honest, who's the only one that can truly be jealous and rightfully so of our time and of our worship and our affection is God. He deserves it. And when we don't give it to him, he has the right to be jealous because he earned it. He deserves it. He is creator God. In the similar sense, we have been given emotion. We can love because God created us with that ability. But here's the difference. Our love is not perfect because our love has been flawed by sin. So we don't love with a perfect love. Our love in our sin is a selfish, self-serving love. It's not fully sacrificing for others kind of love. So we understand that God is the origin of love. It didn't start with us. God created us with the ability to love. In God, that love is perfect. In us, it is flawed. It is perverted, in a sense, because it's not able to be fully what God intended it to be in the flesh. But it brings us to a question. There's a part here that says, And everyone that loves, in verse 7, is born of God and knows God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. So can an unbeliever, somebody that doesn't know Christ, can they love? If you listen to what John says, you might say, well, no. He says right there, if you, don't, I mean, if you know God, you can love. If you don't know God, you can't love. Unbelievers can show love, can have love, obviously. I've known many people that don't know Christ that love one another, right? You do too, right? So what's John saying here? John's talking about this Christ-like love, this God kind of love. See, unbelievers can love. Unbelievers can obviously show love to one another. Of course they can. They show love in many ways, including sacrificing for others. I've met people that don't know the Lord, don't know Christ, but they would gladly lay down their lives for their spouse or their children. They love their spouse that much. They love their children that much. However, I would suggest that the only reason they can do that is because God created them with that ability and I would also suggest that because of sin, we will never fully love, perfectly love others and ourselves as we will when we are united with our Savior in his presence. So here's my point. As a believer, we are understanding the love of God in a different degree because we've experienced the saving love of God, the saving love of grace. And then the Holy Spirit is within us, and he begins to enlighten our minds to the things of God. He is giving us the ability to love as Christ loves. An unbeliever, somebody outside of Christ, can obviously love and has loved and will love and do things that are loving for one another. But I believe that there is a limit to that love because they don't have the Spirit of God enabling them and equipping them to love as Christ loved. Does that make sense? I don't want you to think that, oh, well, somehow we're better than others. That's not what we're saying. What I'm saying is I think there's a limit when we're outside of Christ. We don't fully understand the love of Christ because we haven't experienced it as he's given it to us. And so, yes, obviously those outside of Christ can do loving things and love one another. That's not what John is saying. What John is saying is this God kind of love, this, this love of Christ that you've experienced, those that don't know Christ can't live in that because they don't have the Spirit of God dwelling within them. Love finds its origins in God. 
and is shared from God to his creation in its purest form. How did he do this? Well, not only does love have its origins in God, its origin rather in God, we see that Christ shared, that God shared his love for the world in its purest form because Christ loves the church. Because Christ loves the church. And you might say, well, wait a minute, what about the world? We're going to get to that because if he loves the church, then he made a way for the world to come to know him. We need to understand that we can love each other as he loves. We can love each other as he loves. His love for us is our example. His love for us is our example. Verse 11 of 1 John 4. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Christ loves his church so much he gave himself for her. The Apostle Paul shares this truth with us in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church, and he gave himself for her. What's he saying there? A self-sacrificing love. That's what Christ has for his church. And who is his church? Well, it's not a denomination. It's a group of people that have made the decision to confess and repent of their sins, receiving of God the free gift of salvation and becoming one with Christ. That's his church, the group that has been redeemed from humanity, that's been called out and called to a relationship with Jesus Christ. He loves his church so much that he gave himself for her. John uses the word if here in verse 11. Take note of that in verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. He uses the word if here, but it is not because he is not sure if God loved them. You could get that impression. Well, he's saying if God really loved us this much, and I'm not really sure if God did, but if he did, then we should do this. That's not how John is meaning this. John uses this if to point out an obvious answer. Of course God loves them. Because John, in this very same epistle, in chapter 1, made that very, very clear. God made, or Christ came to us. God sent his son to us. And since God sent him to us and loves us that much, that the holy and perfect, sinless God loves sinners that much that he sent his son, we, one sinner to another, we can love one another that way. See, John wasn't saying, if God loves you this much, then you should do that. I don't really know if he does. He's saying it's an obvious answer. He's asking the readers, if God loves you that much, do you believe God loves you that much? And if you say, well, I don't know if God loves me that much, then be reminded he does love you that much. He sent his son for you. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he cares for you. And because he did that for you, then couldn't, wouldn't it make sense then that if we've received that love for ourselves, that we can love one another? A reference to this type of passing through, the idea of coming from God and going through me to others kind of love, would be found in Matthew chapter 18, verse 33. I'm just going to read a snippet of this parable, this story that Jesus tells. But in Matthew 18, 33, Jesus says this, Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? This is an amazing story, Matthew 18. It's this idea of, of someone being forgiven a great debt. And then they go out and they meet someone who owes them a smaller debt, much smaller debt than what they were just forgiven. And the Bible says the guy grabs the guy by the throat. Let's be real for a minute. It's church, don't lie. You ever want to grab someone by the throat? Let's be, let's be honest. It's okay, you can raise your hand. Some of you are like going, mm, amen, but I'm not raising my hand because I can nod and only you can see that. So. And this guy was forgiven a great debts, a debt he could never repay. And in reaction to that great forgiving act, he goes and finds another person of equal standing who owes him a very small amount, grabs him by the throat and says, pay up. Jesus says, hey, wait a minute, time out. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave? Notice that phrasing, fellow slave. I'm up here, you're both down here. I showed you mercy, but you couldn't show mercy to him. And if I, being who I am, can forgive you and show you mercy and grace, how is it you have an excuse to not show them mercy? Christ showed us mercy and grace by going to the cross. One commentary says it this way. The statement, God is love, the, we read it all throughout 1 John, the statement, God is love, is not simply a doctrine in the Bible. 
It is an eternal fact clearly demonstrated at Calvary. God has said something to us, and God has done something for us. Man, he has loved his church because he gave himself for the church that anyone, for whosoever should call upon the name of the Lord, can be saved and can be brought into the body of Christ, made one with God through Christ. Loving each other, we see the example from Christ, but we also need to understand loving each other is a command from Christ. Verse 21. And this commandment have we from him. Who's the him there? We have a commandment from him. Who's the him? God, specifically Jesus Christ. Saying we have this commandment from him. That he who hath, or that he that loves God loves his brother. It's not we have this suggestion from him. It's not we have this encouragement from him. It's not we have this word from him. And if you feel like it today, then this is what you do. It is not a suggestion. Christ commands believers to love one another. John says we have this commandment from him. A reference to that would be John, the gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 17. It's where Jesus specifically lays this out for them. The love the church has for one another is a testimony to the love we have received from Christ. It's powerful the way in which John communicates this reality in verse 12. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwells in us and his love is perfected in us, in us, in the body of Christ. What's he saying here? No one's ever seen God. No one's ever seen God with their own eyes. But if they've seen the church... They've seen the perfect love of God. But let's be real for a minute here. I was saved at 16 in this church, praise God. I went to a youth camp with a youth group. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. Uh, my parents were not what you'd call good moral influences in my life. They tried. Uh, my stepdad was kind of a very angry, aggressive guy, a lot of discipline in my home growing up. My mom was an alcoholic for most of my childhood, attended bar or drank at the bar. Whenever she wasn't tending, she was out on three-day binges. It just was not a good home life. But at 16 years old, I got invited to go to church, and then I got invited to go to a youth camp. Second night of the camp, I received Christ, and God changed my life. My mom rededicated her life not so long after that. My stepdad came to know the Lord. My younger brother, uh, who attends church here, he got saved the same summer I received Christ. God radically changed my family. And I started going to church. It was the greatest decision I ever made was to start attending regularly church services. Let me encourage you something. You don't go to church because you want to impress other people. We don't go to church to impress God. We go to church because we love him and we want to worship him and encourage one another. This isn't even, a, this, is, this is only a little bit about us and it's a lot of it about him, you know. It's just a lot of directed towards him, but we're blessed from this. So from 16 years old, I've been attending church. I went to Bible college. I attended a lot of churches when I was in Missouri going to school. I've seen a lot of different kinds of churches, all within the same belief structure. So what I mean is I've seen a lot of churches of different names that believe very similar things. Okay, So we're not talking about churches that don't believe the Word of God is the Word of God or that Jesus is the only way. I'm talking Bible-preaching churches, but do church very differently. I've met a lot of different kinds of Christians. I had friends in college from, they were missionary kids from Ireland or England or Argentina. I mean, just the crazy stories they would tell. Loved it. But there's something I've seen that's similar among all of it. That, that often in our world today, the most loving people in our world today are not represented in the body of Christ. Divisive people, they're there. Gossiping people, they're there. Judgmental people, they're represented. Are there loving people in the body of Christ? Of course there are. But what are we supposed to be known for? Like what does the Bible say over and over again? This is the mark. This is the mark. This is how they'll know you're my disciple. This is how they'll know you have the love of Christ. They can't see me, but they can see you. And what should they be seeing in you? A love that is greater than yourself. Now, I'm not saying that everyone in this room is perfect and we don't ever gossip, we don't ever sin, we don't ever have issues, we don't ever get in. I'm saying that happens. I understand that. And I've heard people say, well, the church can't be perfect because people aren't perfect. I understand that. And I'm not saying we should be a perfect church. We never will be a perfect church. We all have our struggles and failures. We've all made mistakes. I've said things and done things that I wish I could take back. 
but we should be striving to be a church that is known for its love for one another. I'm not talking about a sin-condoning love, right? We already talked about that. I'm not talking about a compromising love where we don't preach truth. But what does Paul say? Truth in... And we need to be careful that our testimony as individual believers and as a body of Christ is marked with the things the Bible says should be marked with. Now, I'm not saying we're not going to have disagreements. I'm not saying we're going to have differences of opinions because we will. And it's fine to have those conversations and to share those things. I'm all for that. But man, we better do what the Bible says and speak with grace. We can have conversations that are disagreements, but we better remember at the core of it, we're a believer first, right? I'm in this conversation to share my point of view, but ultimately I'm here to glorify God. So whatever I do to make my point, I better make sure I'm doing it in a way that glorifies God. That doesn't involve name calling or insults or whatever. But saying that, I've been there. I've been there. Last couple months, I'll be honest with you, I've said some things to Sandra that I'm like, that wasn't the right thing to say. Not to Sandra, but about the situation. I'll give you an example. Transparency time, okay? Pastor John's going to be transparent for a change. I know, that's so weird. I really, I really disagree with some of the things that have happened in our state, what our government has done at the local level. I really disagree with a lot of the things. Now, I don't disagree with all of it. I haven't disagreed with all of it from the beginning. A lot of things in the beginning, I was like, yeah, cool, I get it. Let's do it. I'm all for it. I'm, I'm more for it than not. But as time's gone on, there's things I don't agree with. And I made a comment to Sandra. And I said something about our governor. And I made a play on her, on her name. I made a play on her name to something else. And I won't even say it. <laughs> Hear me now. A couple days go by. The boys are sitting there. Something was said about a new decision that was made just a couple weeks ago. And I, I looked at Sandra and she said, oh, did you hear about blah, blah, blah. And I said, oh, I didn't read that yet. I, you know, we started talking about it. And Anthony says to me, oh, governor. And he says what I said a few days before, a week or two before. And it dawned on me. That's a failure as a, as a godly father. Last time I checked, this says we should pray for our leaders, not insult them. Last time I checked, it says pray for the king. Now, I can disagree with what she does. I can make that known. But I better do it in a way that's God-honoring. Not just to get a laugh or a chuckle out of someone, because I think it's funny. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh, come on, it's not that big of a deal. You have one life to live. That means one testimony. Now, when you blow it, you can say, I blew it. And there's grace for forgiveness. But, man, we got to be so careful. When that happens... And I've known this as a dad. Parents know this, right? Your kids are like sponges. They hear what you don't think they hear. Like, for example, when I say to Sandra at 10 o'clock at night, hey, do you want a milkshake? <laughs> and we're not getting the kids milkshakes because they're in bed. We're supposed to be in bed. And the next morning, I mean, like the other night, I'm getting ready to leave. It's like, I don't know. I hope this isn't too transparent for Sandra, but she'll be fine. I just ask for forgiveness later. It's like 9.45. It was like just one of those days, you know, like we were just wiped from being outside working and stuff. And, and I said, man, I could, I could love. I know you could take McDonald's. You're probably like, oh, it's so gross. I like McDonald's milkshakes. I know they're so fake and they're so full of junk, whatever. I like them, okay? I do. I don't know why. I, I have real milkshakes with actual strawberries that I'm like, mm, this is okay. Give me that fake stuff from McDonald's. That's what I want. So I said to Sandra, I said, hey, do you want a milkshake? And she's like, oh, that does sound good. I said, okay, cool. So let me get my keys. And, you know, I'm trying to be super ninja, right? Like the keys don't jingle, nothing like that. And as I'm getting ready to go, you know, we come back and we have the milkshakes. And I said, well, like the bag or the stuff was on the, the table between our chairs and straw wrappers and the empty cups. And I was like, oh, I better clean this up so the boys don't see it in the morning. Any parents can testify, okay? Any parents know what I'm talking about. You're like trying to hide the evidence. I was like, man, they're going to see this. I'm pushing it in the trash. Sandra actually said, make sure you put some trash on top of it so that the kids don't open the lid and see the cups. We real, okay? This is real life stuff. I'm like pushing it down, putting a paper plate over top, like just throwing some Kleenexes on there. Many of you know, some of you know rather, that Josiah's bedroom is right off our living room. There's like a little hallway, and then there's his bedroom. The next morning, he comes up to me and said, so you had milkshakes last night, huh? <laughs> Did you got like a nanny cam somewhere? What are you doing? How do you know this? 
And he said, no, I was laying awake and I heard you say, do you want a milkshake? I'm not kidding, guys. The TV was on. I said, it's so quiet. And she, he heard me. I can see, he'll be sitting next to me. I'll say, go clean your room. <laughs> what? What'd you say? Oh, I didn't hear you. I'm sorry. Milkshake. Man, like, like a hound. They're on it. The point of that is this. There is a point, by the way. Man, I, I, you think I would have learned by now with a 12-year-old and a 9-year-old. Kids, listen to what we say. And I got one chance at this being a dad thing, and I'm so thankful for grace when I've blown it, because I've blown it, guys, big time. But man, I better learn and make adjustments. I can't go, oh, sorry, God, I blew it on that one, and then choose to not apply a difference in my life. When we apply a difference and then we blow it, we can say, God, I'm sorry for that. Help me to grow in that. I'm not saying we don't go for grace. What I'm saying is, man, that spoke to me. I taught my son to disrespect the leader of our state, whether I disagree with her or not, that's not okay. Because how am I going to expect my son to disrespect her one minute and then pray for her the next with the right heart? How am I going to pray for my leader with a disrespectful, bitter attitude over here? But, oh, no, let me pray with the love of Christ for them. And this is true of every leader that we can think of. Some of you can't stand our president. Some of you love our president. doesn't really matter to me because that's your decision to make. That's where you stand. But do you pray for him with an honest love to say, God, would you just work in that person's life? By the way, I said this when Trump is our president. I said this when Obama was our president. I wasn't preaching a lot when George W. was in there, but I would say it then too. You don't have to agree with the person. But man, first we're a believer, a Christian, a follower of Christ. And so is the love for the church evident to the world around us? where they see the love of Christ first. Now, that being said, you've met people that have said, oh, yeah, I've heard of churches having splits. Man, our own church has had splits. <laughs> I don't hide it. I embrace it because it's our history. But if we don't learn from it, we're going to repeat it. Do you know what happened in our church, why we had a split? It wasn't this person's fault or that person's fault. It wasn't even Satan's fault. Now, Satan definitely was glorified in the split. And he's on the body of Christ's struggles. He's glorified. He likes that. We had a split in our church because we forgot that as a church, we're supposed to love one another. And people got their eyes on themselves and what they wanted. And the love was out the window. Meant aggression, division, pride, arrogance, all of it are seeds of an unloving heart. And in Christ, we better make sure that we are loving one another. We cannot preach a gospel of love if we cannot love our brothers and sisters in Christ. You and I must desire to, and strive to be one with Christ so that we can love like Christ. We desire and strive to be one with Christ. So how do we do that? John 15, we abide in him and in his word so that we can grow in our loving others like Christ. I obviously have to admit I struggle in this area. I struggle with loving others like Christ. I daily have to ask for guidance, forgiveness, and wisdom so that I can show his love to someone else. Quickly, before we run out of time, not only does love find its origin of God, we see that displayed in Christ's love for the church, but also we see letting his love, as we've kind of talked about a little bit already, letting his love testify to the world. Verse 9. 1 John 4, 9. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Live through him. Everything is a glory to him. We're living this life for him. Letting his love testify to the world around us. He sent his son into the world. When we see the love of Christ for the world, not condoning sin or denying truth, but loving his creation in the midst of their sin and rebellion, we see our example he came to seek and to save that which was lost. This is not comfortable for us. We do not like that idea. We don't like the idea of loving those that are different from us, loving those that are unsaved, loving those that are sinners that have sinned against us or sin in a way that we disagree with. We are fine showing love to people we like, but those that we don't like or who have offended or sinned against us, we don't want to love them. I want to say that loving someone with the love of Christ is not saying we agree with them. 
It's not saying we allow them influence in our personal lives. It's not saying we're best friends with them. It's not saying we give them all the trust again. That's not what it means to love what we're talking about here. What we're saying is I, I forgive those who have offended against me and I serve them if I can with the love and grace of God. I preach the gospel to them that they might know Christ. I don't hold their faults against them, but I do use discernment and wisdom in who I allow to have influence in my life. But that's true in general. That should be true in all of our lives. We should always be guarded who we allow influence in our lives. It means that if I can serve them, I do it. If we can share the gospel with them, we do it. If we need to forgive them, we do it. That's what it means to love the world in a way that Christ loved the world. We forgive those who have offended against us, and we testify to them that even in the midst of their sin, God can save them as he saved us. One final point here in understanding this idea of how do we live this out. I want to look at a key in verses 15 and 16. 1 John 4, 15 and 16. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwells in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God hath for us. God is love. And he dwelleth in love, or, and he, he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. There's a phrase there, do you see it? Dwells in love. I love that in 1 John 4. Dwells in love. That must be my timer. Time's up. Love's, love is something that we actually dwell in. Love is something that we actually live in. To dwell here in this passage means, hear me now, to remain and abide. To remain and abide. Another aspect of the definition carries the idea of to remain as one, not to become another or different. So how does that connect to love. You could say it this way, that we are to remain and abide in love and not to become something else, but to be, the, to be one with love, specifically the love of Christ. God dwelling with man and man with God was God's desire all along. Isn't that a beautiful picture? God dwelling with us. God had fellowship with man in a personal, direct way before the fall. In the garden, what does it say? That God and Adam had a relationship. They spent time together every day. Then after we, see the word, after we see the fall take place in Genesis 3, we see the word walked being used through Genesis. He walked with Enoch. He walked with Noah and walked with Abraham. Then after the unfolding of Exodus, we see God commanded Israel to, quote, make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them, Exodus 25.8. The glory of God, his presence, dwelled among the tabernacle, the temple, and even in the camp of Israel. But it did not fully dwell in the people. God's presence dwelled in the tabernacle, it dwelled in the temple, it dwelled in the camp, but we do not see it fully dwelling in people. The only time that God's spirit would come upon someone was for a direct purpose or a reason. Once that was fulfilled, the spirit of God would leave. Or if the person disqualified themselves, that the Spirit of God would leave. Then we read an amazing truth in John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we beheld His glory. That word tabernacled is the literal translation of the word dwelled we see in John 1, 14. Christ came to open the door to intimate relationship with the Father. When we receive Christ, He comes and indwells us. We are one with Him. We dwell in him and him in us. And so therefore, because God is love, we dwell in love. We dwell in Christ. Christ dwells in us by the working of the Holy Spirit. And since God is love, Jesus being God, we actually dwell in love. And so let me ask you a question this morning, just for your own personal application. What's keeping you from dwelling in love? Now you might say, well, I'm saved. But what's keeping you from actively living in that? that it actually overflows out of our life. When we get our eyes off Christ and onto ourselves, we will find it easier to not show love to others. I know for me, when I struggle the most in loving others is when I am not actively abiding in Christ, when I am putting my eyes on people or situations instead of Christ. And so let me ask you this morning, what is it? Is it what's going on around us right now in our culture, in our country, and in our world? I understand why. I get it. I get the frustrations. But as we said last week, I'm a believer first. I'm everything else second. 
I, believe, I understand why we're frustrated. And I, I'm not saying we should just kind of ho-hum go along with it. We can make our opinion known. We can share that we disagree with things. We can vote. We can pursue change. But let's do it in a way that reflects a love of Christ for the world. Not all about me, but all about him and all things. Because here's the thing, no matter what happens tomorrow, you ready for this? He still loves you. He still loves you. No matter what happens in your life tomorrow, he's still there for you. His grace and his mercy are still available to you. And so let's pursue the love of Christ so that we can actually say, man, I'm dwelling in his love today. Not just for others, but we start what I know he loved me. And because of that, I can live in a way that displays that love to others for his glory and his praise. Let's pray. Father, I know in this area, Lord, we all struggle. Lord, I know in this area, we all have weaknesses. Things that we day-to-day might get frustrated with us and we voice things or we express things that aren't very loving in a Christ-honoring way. I pray that we would know, Lord, that the love of Christ that we're talking about here is not a, uh, a doormat kind of a love where we just take abuse after abuse after offense. It, it doesn't mean that. What it means is that when somebody sins against me, I forgive them. We can set boundaries. We can set limitations. But, Lord, we can forgive them. And we pursue a love for them that if they're in need, we serve them. And we do it with a good heart. Because we want to display that when we were sinners and enemies of God, you came to us. You didn't agree with our sin. You didn't condone our sin. You spoke truth against our sin, and we, we had to make a decision. You didn't void all the consequences of sin in this life. So I pray that we would follow that example, that we would love one another, and that that love would be a testimony to the world around us. That when people see this church, that they would know we're not a perfect church. We don't have it all together all the time, but we love one another. Lord, maybe there's somebody in this room right now that has a disagreement with somebody else in the church. I pray that there'd be forgiveness and restoration. Lord, maybe there's somebody here this morning that has sought forgiveness or apologized for an offense, and it wasn't reciprocated. I pray that that person would let that go. They've done what they can do, and they need to move on. Lord, in all these things, I pray that you would give us wisdom and guidance as I know individually it can be a very unique situation we all face. So thank you for being a unique God that deals with us as individuals, working in our own hearts and minds, in our own life situations. Help us to abide in you and your word abide in us that we would dwell in love and we give you all the glory and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning as we spend time in a song of invitation? If you'd like to come and pray, maybe God is speaking to your heart in some way in this area of that Christ-like love. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, man, pastor, I've slipped. I'm not dwelling in love as I know I need to. Maybe you'd come and say, God, would you give me grace and give me wisdom to pursue that love? Maybe you want to come and say, God, thank you for loving me this much that you gave yourself for me on the cross, that I could know you for eternity. Maybe you want to come and just praise him by bending a knee and spending some time in prayer. Whatever God is doing, would you respond? as we worship him this morning.